0: On this show, we want to bring you conversations with people at the very top of the field and really break down how they work. And today, uh, we have a guest who not only have we wanted to bring on for a very long time, but somebody who we have genuinely been inspired by for decades.
1: Yeah uh, Today we had Stephen Wolfram. Wolfram needs no introduction. Mm-hmm. He's a scientist, he's a physicist. He is the author of New Kind of Science. He's the founder of Wolfram Research. Uh, But most of all, in a time when, you know, this word gets thrown around a lot, he's a genuine genius.
0: He really is. And we really got into it uh, over the next hour or so. And you will see us ask about how he works, his productivity. He's insanely productive. Uh, How he thinks about AI. He's been working a lot on AI. uh, Life cellular automata, uh, physics, the universe, uh, and there's some amazing stories in there. Uh, he's worked with some remarkable people and he has some amazing stories, especially uh, with the on and only Richard Feynman, uh, which we absolutely adored. Now, uh, going in, we knew that he was a genius. I think we all knew that, that he was brilliant. But what we didn't know and we were so touched by was how funny, how optimistic, Uh, how warm and just how human he was. So hopefully you will see all of that as well. So ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Olfram. So walk us through maybe uh, how you approach personal productivity, how you have actually, how you actually have a system of storing everything that you've ever created and ever touched on, because I think that just super fascinating.
2: Well, I, I think the main point is I like I like producing things. I've tried to set up my life so I have the best opportunity to produce things. And that happens both at a macro scale and at a micro scale. At a macro scale, I've been you know I'm a person who generates ideas and the question is how do you turn ideas into real things? And the best mechanism I find to do that is to have a company that I've been running the same company now for 36 years and uh, have a lot of very talented people. And this this is, uh, I view my company in large part as a machine for turning ideas that I have into into real things. On a micro scale, uh, I kind of like to be able to do creative individual work. I like to be able to do work with other people. I found that um, in working with with other people, uh, one of the things that I've tended to do is the kind of think in public type mode of work. Where, you know, we're, we're trying to, I'm, I'm used to trying to figure things out and I, and I like doing that with other people. And, but it's something where I'm not kind of going off into a corner to think about things. I'm actually sort of doing it interactively with other people. And the last five years, actually, we've taken that to a, a greater extreme because we've been live streaming a lot of our internal, uh, design meetings and so on, trying to work out, uh, how Wolfram language and so on should be, should be built. And that's been that's been an interesting process. But in terms of the things that I personally work on, one of the things that's important to me, I have a a decent, I would say, quite good personal memory, and that's kind of spoiled me because I really want to know sort of everything I've done and be able to access everything I've done. So I've I've archived sort of everything, and I I have I don't know what is it now thirty three years of of uh, you know email archives, and I you know capture every keystroke i type and images of screens and all sorts of uh, you know personal you know how many steps did i take each day all those kinds of things um and uh, and i've also scanned oh maybe a quarter million pages of of documents from from the period of the, of ancient history before <laughs> the early 1980s actually when when everything was on paper um, and you know for me this is incredibly useful because it means that when things come up, and I'm like, oh yeah i I thought about that once before I've got a good chance to be able to search for it. It's probably going to get even better with kind of l l m based um search techniques.
1: do you feed now all of that into an l l m to be able to retrieve faster to be able to autocomplete? would what do you think you're going to do with all of this repository now that you have LLMs in place?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, we we just prepped 50 million words of output that are from me, which is pretty much my my corpus, my personal corpus, about 50 million words, wow. um, and uh, that's um, and we have it, so that's nice. And now, yes, we can use it for our LLM training. We've done a little bit of that. Uh, exactly what the results of that will be, I don't know. I, I my my current guess is, you know, I get a lot of email from lots of different kinds of people asking lots of kinds of questions and so on. And, you know, I like to be able to answer, but realistically I don't have time to to answer all of these things. And so I think a likely thing is that it's like first the bot answers and tries to give resources that might be useful as a response and says, if you didn't like this, well, you know, You could ask for a human, but it might take a little while for the, for a human to, to do it. So that's a, that's a possible kind of mechanism for dealing with that. I I think also a thing that I expect to be pretty useful there is there are things where, yes, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at remembering names and things. So, you know, I kind of remember the name and then that's a hook and I can do a, just a straight text search. But there are also cases where it's a bit fuzzier and I kind of remember the concept. But not the specific words, and I think that's something that will be helped by sort of LLM-based retrieval. But we that we we haven't yet quite built that. We're in the process of doing it, but um, so I I can't I can't report on its its progress yet.
0: Have there been changes that you've made to your life or how you work based on your access to the entire Stephen Wolfram corpus?
2: You know, I kind of know things about. Responding to email, for example, you know, I'll build it up to a certain point, then I'll spend a certain amount of time grinding it down. I know roughly how long it takes to grind down different, uh, in a sense, grades of email from the ones that are really hard to respond to, to the ones that just require, you know, very short 15 second response or something. And, you know, things like what time of day should I look at this stuff? How much should I let it build up before, before I really start grinding it down? Um, those types of things, th- those things I know, I, I think, oh, you know, I like to walk my 10,000 steps every day and things like this. And, and, uh, you know, so I've, I've set things up. So, you know, the meetings at the first meetings in the morning are ones where I can be walking. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sufficiently kind of, uh, uh, crazy detailed about these things that, you know, my assistant goes and looks up the weather and things like that. And it's like, well, I will I be able to walk outside or not? Different kinds of meetings are possible if I'm walking outside than if I'm walking inside, those kinds of things. So that's a, a level of kind of nerdy optimization, which is, is, uh, uh, you know, is, is nice. I kind of my, my general calculation is if I keep the mechanics of my life as straightforward as possible, I get to put as much effort as I uh, increase the amount of effort that I can put into kind of the intellectual, creative side of my life, and I I like that.
1: As we all know, uh, Wolfram is a physicist and a scientist, but he's also a pioneer in AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Recently, he's put out a lot of work. He's published a ton of posts on large language models, on chat GPT and artificial intelligence. So we asked him how ChatGPT works and what it means for all of us and for our future. What was amazing to us was this is a person who is obviously really at the top of his game uh, on research and science. And he took ChatGPT as a concept and really explained it in a way that everybody could understand.
2: The basic sort of what people, many people will know is it's all about, you've got a piece of text and what's the likely way that humans would would continue that piece of text? Where what likely means is based on a few billion pages read from the web, what's the sort of statistical expectation for how that piece of text will be continued? Now, turns out there isn't enough text on the web. Maybe it has a trillion words it can read. There isn't, and that isn't enough to be able to continue a piece of text that starts. I don't know the. Uh, the the tiger in my in my uh, uh, office is doing X because mm-hmm. there isn't a lot of times people have have talked about tigers in their office on the web so it, it has to have kind of a model of how humans think about language and the model that's been used is one that actually really is is based on ideas from the 1940s about sort of an idealization of the way brains are set up this kind of uh, uh, in a sense, formal model of neurons connected together uh, with weights and so on. And it's turned out that that model is a pretty good way of guessing sort of how the text should be continued. And, and so, you know, the the, the thing that ChatGPT is ultimately doing is it's it's adding a word at a time, figuring out what's the likely way that humans, based on what they've written in those few billion web pages, would continue this particular piece of text. And it's it's sort of remarkable that something that kind of in a sense straightforward in conception can produce things that are as human-like as the essays that ChatGPT produces, and I think what that's revealing is something sort of a science fact about uh, about human language that in a sense we we could and should have known. Uh, for a long time. I mean, we know there's certain regularities in human language. We know there's certain syntactic grammar of human language. You know, it goes noun, verb, noun, things like this. What I think ChatGBT has learnt is that there are also kind of rules of meaning, rules of construction of sentences by meaning that go beyond just the nouns and verbs, but actually refer to, to deal with the kinds of things that different words mean. And I think, you know, we have one terrific example of this that's 2,000 years old, which is due to Aristotle, it's the idea of logic. And in a sense, I think, you know, sort of the, the picture of what Aristotle might have done when he invented logic is take all these examples of, of rhetoric, of speeches people gave, and say, what are the structures of argument that people used? and and then say, okay, we recognize, and, and people used to, in the Middle Ages, you know, school kids used to memorize these different structures of argument. That's kind of gone, gone by the wayside. But um, uh, And those were the ones that um, uh, one could sort of lift out of the text, where, you know, a typical sort of syllogism would be, you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal you don't actually have to be talking about socrates you could be talking about lots of other things but the structure is still the same you know when people say oh look isn't it amazing you know chat gpt can do various kinds of reasoning it has it has seen just as socrates uh, just as aristotle did it's seen endless examples of these kinds of kind of argument structures and so yes it will uh, you know because by doing what people typically do it will follow those argument structures because that's what it's seen people typically do um and so i think that's uh, what, we're, what we're seeing is kind of that there are these structures in language that are like logic, except they're different from logic. They talk about other kinds of, of topics and so on, which could have been cataloged in the last 2,000 years. They didn't happen to have been. I mean, I actually have been for the last decade or so meaning to get around to the project of doing this. And it's one of those cases where in a sense, you know, as one tries to plan out one's life and figure out what projects to do, it's always a question of when should you do this particular project? You know, I have a collection of projects I'd like to do. Is it is it the right time now to do this, or am I off by fifty years? Uh, There's a case where I'm sort of glad I didn't initiate this project maybe a decade ago when I was was thinking about doing it because the project just got a lot easier, actually, mm-hmm. I right. think, right. and a lot more and a lot richer as a result of kind of the the whole LLM thing.
1: Right. Um- When I read your article on how does ChatGPT work, I really liked a few things. My takeaways were, you know, in addition to just understanding what goes behind the computer, right? Like understanding it. One, I really liked your explanation of temperatures and not keeping it flat so that there's a level of interestingness and creativity. But when I read through the whole thing, you know, you talk about uh, how to recognize a cat, you know, examples of that sort. To me, it gave me a sense of, really understanding how my brain works or the human brain works. Uh, It was less about GPT as a model and chat GPT. To me, it felt like I'm obviously oversimplifying, but it felt like the human brain is basically with this limited corpus, um, a system of autocomplete. You know, it's trying to predict ahead of time what you're going to go say next and kind of modeling that with the limited language capability that you have. So to me, that I thought was like really fascinating to give a window into how our brain works as such
2: the original idea of neural networks from 1943 was invented to give an idealization of how people thought brains might work because people had discovered around 1900 they discovered that brains made of you know well they didn't know the number but We now know it's around 100 billion neurons, and each neuron was this kind of cell that has all these sort of tentacles, these dendrites and axons and so on sticking out of it, maybe 10,000 of them in many cases. Um, People knew that sort of architectural idea, and then people realized it's electrical in the way it works, and that kind of led to this this sort of idealization of kind of this uh, like an electric circuit um, that... Represents the brain, and and what we have now is a kind of a you know people when it was originally done were thinking about you know circuits with five neurons in them. Now we have millions of neurons in 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 the circuit, and there seems to be a you know it, it seems much more human-like. I mean, when I first you know simulated a neural net, which must have been around 1980, it didn't do anything interesting, and uh, in fact, I was I didn't like neural nets because they're kind of complicated because they have all of these different weights and connections and all this kind of thing. And in fact one of the big things that i ended up doing in science came from in part from simplifying how neural nets work down to much simpler systems uh so-called cellular automata um, and then discovering that even those incredibly simple systems can have very complicated behavior i think you know in terms of the comparison between how an artificial neural net works and how brains work yes i think there's a strong correspondence i think the Brains still have a few tricks up their sleeve that we haven't yet sort of reproduced with microelectronics, but I don't think that, I think a lot of what's there is is successfully reproduced. And, and in fact, the reason when people say, isn't it remarkable that neural nets can do all these useful things, the reason they can do useful things is because they are similar in architecture to our human brain. And so they're doing things that we care about because they're the things that we are doing, like recognizing cats and dogs and so on. You know, if you said to it, okay go off into this alien situation you know in the in the atmosphere of jupiter recognizing some weird thing that we humans have never had experience with it might not do very well but it you know of the things that we have evolved to and uh, you know and choose to to pay attention to because it's architected rather similar to us it it does it does a good job with those things
0: one thing which is interesting is, you know, Wolfram just released uh, a plugin um, for ChatGPT, which I highly recommend uh, people check out, which I thought was fascinating because in my mind, I think there is a schism between, I always say predict next word, how, how GPT works. And then the Wolfram approach of let's build a model and do actual symbolic computation. I thought it was kind of a fascinating merger of the two. I'm kind of curious to get your take on both of these approaches. And also, sometimes with GPT-4, there have been examples where uh, it seems to be able to do things which almost implies an internal model way beyond language. For example, on Twitter the other day, there was an example where you get a bunch of axles and gears and it tells you this gear moves this way, that gear moves that way, which almost smells like it knows these things as opposed to living in the world of nouns and adjectives. So, kind of curious to get your take on How do you think about these two worlds and does gpt4 have a model of the universe inside
2: thing to understand is there's kind of shallow computation and there's deep computation and you know one of the strange features of gpt models and so on and, and llms the current generation of llms is you've got a certain amount of text you're trying to figure out the next word you take the text you already have you grind it up into numbers basically and you feed it through this neural net and it ripples through a few hundred layers of the neural net and out comes, you know, a set of probabilities for the next word. It just ripples through. That's all it does. And the only way that it kind of gets to sort of feedback is by the fact that then it's added a word, then it uses the whole thing it got so far to figure out the next word and so on. It's a very straightforward architecture of computation. When, uh, that, when it comes to sort of what can computation generally do, that's a much richer story. I mean, the thing that I've long been interested in is when you start from a very trivially simple program or trivially simple set of rules, just you've got a line of black and white cells, let's say, and you're just going down the page line by line, and at every step you say, you know, determine the color of each cell from the color of the cells above it and to its left and right, According to some particular rule, that's a, it's a very straightforward kind of thing. Uh, cellular automaton is, is kind of the name given to given to that. And you know, you start off with a with something with a very very simple rule about black and white squares and so on. You can specify the rule in less than a line of code or, or icons or, or whatever else. And you you have such a rule, you start off with just let's say one black square, and you can get these amazingly complicated patterns. And this is something which surprised me a lot when I discovered it in the in the early 1980s. In fact, it took me a couple of years, even after I'd been generating computer pictures of these things to actually realize, yes, this really is how things worked and there wasn't some kind of mysterious sort of thing that was causing this, that it was really a fundamental phenomenon that simple programs that you sort of just pluck out of the computational universe of possible programs can show very complicated behavior. Even though the program is simple, the behavior can be complicated. One thing that happens in those kinds of programs is you run it for a million steps. You say, well, what does it do? Well, you can clearly run it for a million steps to find out, but can you jump ahead and just say, oh, I know what it's gonna do. I've just got a formula that says the answer's gonna be X, X or Y. Well, there's a phenomenon I call computational irreducibility, which I think is a really pretty important phenomenon. It's kind of understanding the world. It's gonna be increasingly important in understanding AI and so on. This phenomenon basically says, No, there are many situations in which you cannot jump ahead. You have no choice. There's no way to just sort of do what people have, for the last few hundred years, kind of expected science is always going to deliver, some method of kind of jumping ahead and predicting things. That's that's not something that you'll be able to do in, in lots of cases. So when you have these irreducible computations that you can get even from very simple programs, these irreducible computations are just not doable by something which is kind of a a neural net of the kind where where you know that seems to emulate our brains, now is it really completely not doable? no you can you can imagine sort of having this very elaborate thing where where you're kind of feeding back pieces of the computation and you're kind of extruding out uh, a version of it but but it's not something that in the typical usage of something like a chat GPT, what it's doing is a very shallow computation relative to these kinds of irreducible computations. So, you know, kind of the way I see it is there's, there's sort of the world of deep computations, the world of irreducible computations, which is the world that computers live in. And there's the world that brains are closer to living in, which is this shallow kind of more LLM-like, uh, more kind of autocomplete-like world. And I think the thing that, you know, computers as tools for us humans are quite new. I mean, we've had sort of uh, emulations of that from methods and mathematics and things like that for a few hundred, maybe thousand years. You know, this, this sort of intellectual tool of being able to do irreducible computations, that's a rather new thing for us humans. The thing that's pretty neat now is that with kind of this sort of merged architecture with LLMs and Wolfram language and so on, we can uh, kind of get the, uh, the benefit of both worlds. We can have We can have the LLM be able to use kind of deep computation tools in the same kind of way that we humans do it. And and that's that's potentially very powerful. I mean, I think the workflow that I'm sort of understanding, I mean, I should explain a little bit about what, uh, you know, what our Wolfram language, computational language does, what the point is. The point is to have a true sort of formal representation of the world in computational terms. So there's a way to represent a chemical, there's a way to represent, you know, the distance between two cities, there's a way to represent a movie, there's a way to represent, you know, an image, a piece of sound, things like this. These are all things that are sort of part of this computational representation of the world. And these things are represented in such a way that one can compute things from them. You know, if there's some thing one can do with that audio sample, you know, make a spectrogram, do band pass filtering, whatever it is, uh, do speech analysis on it. Um, that's something that one will be able to do because it is a, it's sort of a, a truly understood representation. It is a computational representation from which you can do arbitrary computations. It's, it's, in a sense, it's, it's a, it's a true, true computational understanding of the world. When looking at something like an LLM, it doesn't have that underlying kind of I really understand the world, I can compute anything from it. If there is a pattern, like a syllogism in logic, that allows me to go and fit these things together, then yes, I can do it. If I have one of these linguistic patterns, I'm going to be able to do it. But otherwise, when it comes to an irreducible deep computation, it's going to be out of luck. And I think these things where you know, one of the things that's kind of a lesson of biology, particularly. Is, you know, you see all these things in biology where you say, amazing, you know, how does it, how does this organism manage to do this? When you really analyze it, it's like, well, it, it figured out this clever thing that once you know it is actually quite straightforward. It's kind of a little trick. And my guess is that, you know, in the case of the the mechanics problem that you were describing, my guess is, you know, in some way, when we really understand how that works, we'll say, oh, it's a trick. It's kind of like a syllogism. You know, when you have a cog and a gear and a this and a that. Then it always is like this, and it's something that we'll be almost able to tell, like a you know, like a, a riddle or something in, in words, is my guess. Uh, you know, when it comes to compute the torque on this particular piece of this particular machine, it's not going to work. That's that's something that's a much deeper computation, and and that's a place where you know we've been very successful in the last few hundred years. science and mathematics and so on in being able to figure out how to do some of those deep computations it's very different you know back in the day if you'd gone to before the 1600s for example most physics most science people would do they talk about it just in words then people started inventing the kind of these formal ways to to represent science and you could start having these these kind of deeper computations to figure things out it's worth kind of pointing out i mean this this kind of whole idea of computational language just got much more exciting, I would say. I thought it was pretty exciting beforehand, but uh, because it sort of becomes this medium for communication between uh, and collaboration between humans and AIs. Yeah,
0: I I so agree with you. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I remember reading NKS, and I didn't understand a lot of it at the time, probably still don't understand a lot of it now, but I remember uh, coming across Rule 30, and the way I think about it is a little bit like pi, where there is a simple expression. Everyone understands it. We know that it goes on forever. We know that it's not a rational number. But to actually find the nth place of pi, you actually have to do it. And there's almost like a beauty of what emerges. So uh, could you maybe this is kind of interesting tangent. Could you explain why rule 30 is interesting and beautiful?
2: So rule 30 is one of these cellular automata. The 30... Just you take the binary decomposition of 30, it's one 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 one, zero. That specifies the rule. That's a program basically. That number 30 is just a way of numbering a very, very simple program. And the thing that's interesting about it is that very simple program started off with one black cell, you get this whole pattern. There's some regularity in it. There's some, uh, but if you look at kind of just the center column of cells, it's a bit like the digits of pi. So far as we can tell, it's once you've generated it, it looks completely random. You know, you do sort of tests of randomness, you try and cryptanalyze it, you do all these kinds of things. It just seems random, even though we know it's produced from this, from this very simple rule. Discovering rule 30 was kind of this, this open, this door, into realizing when we look at nature, for example, and we see all this complexity in nature, this is the trick it's using. It's, it's using these simple programs that were just sort of plucked from the computational universe. And they've been kind of missed in science because people didn't have a way to think about them. People just sort of said, Oh, that's messy. That's complicated. We don't know what's doing. And what kind of the, the, the sort of the starting point for what became my new kind of science book was the new kind of science you have to make where you really embrace this idea, then in the computational universe, simple programs can do very complicated things. That, That leads you to a kind of science that's different from the kind of science people have traditionally used, and the kind of science people have traditionally used is all about, can we write down a mathematical formula for how the system is going to behave? And the point here is, well, no, there's just a program that specifies how the system will behave. And when you run that program, it's often producing an irreducible computation. And you know, I, I could tell a, a story from long ago about sort of the interaction between physics and uh, sort of traditional thinking in physics, and and things like Rule Thirty. I, I used to be friends with a, a well-known physicist called Dick Feynman. Dick Feynman was was sort of it uh, was famous for being kind of an intuitive thinker in physics. I have to say, it's always one of these things where you you learn something by by knowing people well about sort of ways that people work, because but Dick Feynman, one of his one of his most striking attributes was that he was a very good human computer of things. You know, he could do a calculation, go through all these steps, and actually get the right answer. I couldn't do that. With a computer, I could do pretty well. But without a computer, just doing it for myself, hopeless. But, you know, he did that. And then he would always think, oh, that's all rather trivial, doing those difficult calculations and so on. I have to now, at the end, after I've got the answer, I have to figure out this great intuitive reason why it ha- that answer has to be that way. And nobody cares about all these calculations because everybody can do that. That's easy, so he thought. Um, and so there are many cases where, you know, you come up with these intuitive uh, explanations and nobody could figure out how he'd done that, why that was really true, because there was this calculation which he didn't bother to show anybody. So that I always found that kind of, kind of fun. But it's also one of these cases where the things that one happens to find easy, one kind of always assumes aren't very significant, even though they might not be so easy to other people. But, you know, with Rule 30, I remember we were both um, consultants actually at a, well, ultimately ill-fated company called Thinking Machines Corporation in uh, in Boston and um, it was a company that uh, in the early 80s was was trying to make massively parallel computers, which happened to be really good machines for doing cellular automaton simulations. They were supposed to be good machines for doing AI kinds of things, but that didn't work out so well. But they were really good for doing cellular automata. So we're both there at one time and I was just thinking about Rule 30 and I had this giant printout of Rule 30 at very high resolution and we we're trying to figure out a bunch of features of it. And Feynman had this kind of calculation, mathematical calculation of some aspects of it and, and working out things about, you know, how random it was and so on. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, You know he he takes me aside and he sort of says you know i just want to know how did you know that rule 30 was going to produce all this kind of really random behavior and so on and i said well i didn't know i just ran all the possible rules and then just saw what happened and this one did all this interesting stuff and he was like oh okay now i feel much better i thought you had an intuition that would tell you how this works you know, in the end, one develops an intuition from seeing many examples, but I didn't have it coming coming into this. And it was uh, sort of a a, um, uh, a piece of just do the experiment carefully and be, uh, be sort of capable of absorbing it, which took me a couple of years, actually, capable of absorbing what one had actually seen in the experiment.
1: One of the things that has always puzzled me and kind of made me unhappy was, uh, you know, about Ramanujan, uh, similar related... Uh, You know, I'm a big fan of Ramanujan, really, you know, followed all his work. um, And, you know, the pi computation, I've always been vexed about his uh, reasoning being, the goddess showed up and told me the numbers. The reason why he says that is because it's, it's, unlike Feynman, it's less intuition and it's less like a divine intervention that just came in and told him. It's less, it's more that he's a really fast, uh calculator he just computes it it really really quickly in his head but nobody just believed him they're like but how do you know and he's like w-? and then he finally got sick of it and he was like well it's the goddess like of course it's a i, I just thought that story was just really funny
2: right right i i think it's interesting that that ramajan produced all these amazing formulas and results and so on for example about a way to compute pi that that uh, is still used today and the question was how did he do it and 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 you're right i mean he was a good calculator and he would just do calculations and notice these patterns and say oh i think this formula has to be the result of uh, has to be the result just because i calculated all these cases and this formula fits those those cases that i calculated and usually he got it right and he got it right producing formulas that were just utterly bizarre to mathematicians of the time their approach to doing things had been a different paradigmatic approach. Their approach had been, let's prove it by going step by step. And so when Ramanujan showed up and had all these weird formulas, they said, but how do you prove it? And he had no idea because that wasn't how he got that formula. And, uh, you know, hence hence, in frustration, the you know, the goddess story and, and things like this. But I think it, it's um, uh, it is interesting that I think this idea of experimental mathematics, the idea that you can do experiments in these abstract worlds is something Ramanujan did for mathematics. Um, it's something that uh, uh, you know, I, I spent lots of time doing in the kind of computational world. You know, In most areas of science, there are a lot more experimentalists than theoreticians um, that, that it's still very slow going and people doing sort of experimental mathematics and kind of computational experiments, I kind of, I kind of coined the term ruleology for the study of what simple rules do. And uh, I think that's, um, you know, I I recently coined that term, even though I've been sort of doing that thing for, for forty years now. And um, I'm sort of, I'm sort of just waiting for the uh, for how long it's going to be before there are, you know, professors of ruleology and things like that. It's it's a great field because it's really this study of simple rules and what they do is sort of a totally foundational kind of question and it's sort of guaranteed if you study those foundational questions, they're going to be applicable to lots of different kinds of things. So that's a it's a really it's a really good kind of upstream place to be uh, in the kind of supply chain of ideas, so to speak. Um, you know, when you're operating with these very simple rules, they're going to have lots of downstream consequences.
1: I have one leading question here. I know you have something else to ask about, but one thing that I've always wanted to ask you is, do you really think there is such a thing as randomness or a random number or random generation of anything? Or is it just that we don't have enough computational power yet to figure out the next sequence or the pattern itself? Or we just don't have the time. We just haven't waited long enough to be able to see the pattern recurring. What do you think?
2: You know, what we mean in practice by random is we can't predict it. Yeah. Now, the question is, if we were better, smarter, faster, you know, could we predict it? That's an interesting question in view of computational irreducibility. That's a that's a question we're gonna say, well, yes, in principle, something could predict it. Mm-hmm. But the real sort of anchoring issue is in our universe could that happen? Mm-hmm. In other words, one could say, in principle, this could exist, but built in our physical universe, it might not be possible for it to exist. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing we can talk about in more detail, I mean, one of the big excitements for me in the last three years has been that I think we cracked how fundamental physics works. And so we can really start to ask questions like, in our actual universe, is this or that possible? And I think we can say that it's a very complicated story whether what we mean by randomness in our universe. Let me give you an example. The um, And we're kind of skipping ahead a bit, but, but um, in, in a sense, one thing about our existence in the universe is, let's say, where are we in physical space? We happen to be on this planet, in this corner of this galaxy, etc. 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 But that's where we happen to be. There doesn't, there's no sort of theory that says this is where we have to be. It's just that's where we happen to be. And so in that sense, you could say, well, that choice is kind of random in some sense of where we happen to be. But the dynamics of how the universe works is in many ways completely determined, but there are these aspects of how we observe it, which are, in a sense, happen to be that way just because we're the observer that we are rather than some other observer. So in some sense, there is a, there's a kind of a, a, a source of what you can think of as randomness just by the fact that we happen to be where we happen to be. But the dynamics of what's happening in the universe is it's just doing its thing, and it's doing its thing in a very determined way. Um, we just sample it in, in in different fashions. Is the universe something where fundamentally independent of this question of sampling it, it works kind of like pi where it just computes what the next, next step is? Or does it work like something that goes beyond what any computer can do? Um, and I strongly think, based particularly on what we've been able to figure out in physics, that it works in more like pi where it's something where a computer you know, a big enough version of the computers that we have today would be able to compute the universe, so to speak.
0: Throw back to something we were discussing a little while earlier, uh, maybe one of the most important topics being discussed right now, on AI safety and alignment. And there are multiple schools of thought, but maybe just to start off with, what is your take on the risks of a superhuman intelligence turning us into paperclip maximizers? Uh, I'm curious, is it possible? Is it something to be worried about? Uh, How does it trade off against the positive effects of AI? How do you just think about all of this? The the way I
2: I tend to think about this is, you know, there are more and more things in the world that will be done with AIs, and it's hard to understand what's happening inside an AI. In the end, there's all sorts of irreducible computation happening inside AIs, and in the end, sort of the world will have this kind of civilization of AIs that some kind of infrastructure, of the world that is operating in these ways that we can't readily understand. And you might say, that's terribly shocking. You know, we, we, you know, how could we exist in such a situation? But the fact is, that's the situation we've been in with respect to the natural world for the whole of our existence, so to speak. The natural world is doing all kinds of computations. It's, it's doing all kinds of things. We sort of coexist with the natural world. Occasionally, the natural world throws things at us that are kind of awkward. and. You know, they don't quite turn us into paperclips, but they might, uh, you know, there might be an, an asteroid that hits, that that cooks us all or whatever else. Um, it, it's, you know, different kinds of, kinds of things can be thrown up by the natural world. And you say, well, you know, what's the natural world going to do? Can we tell what the natural world is going to do? Well, you know, natural scientists go and try and study the natural world and see what it's going to do. And we can say a certain amount about what it's going to do. But in the end, we're kind of bitten by computational irreducibility. And we can't really know everything about what the natural world is going to do. We just have to kind of watch and see how things unfold. I mean, it's kind of a a bit of a fatalistic view, but I think it's the necessary view um, that that one has to have. And I think in terms of AI, there are things that, you know, in the short term and the details of technology, there are sort of goofy things that could be done that would cause trouble. But I think in the end, you know, what we have to expect is that there's kind of a civilization of AIs, with which we are sort of co-evolving and coexisting, you know, just as with the natural world, there are amazingly powerful things that we can do by harnessing the natural world. So too, that will be the case with, with you know, the, the computational world and, and AI. And there are things where it will do things we don't like. And that's I think that's sort of uh, uh, comes with the territory. And I think that the idea that we make machines where we can readily understand what they do that's a very Industrial Revolution kind of idea. It's kind of the thing is it's got cogs and levers and you can trace every cog and every lever, you can see what it does. That's, if you do that, you're not taking the best advantage of computation. Computation can do these irreducible things that go beyond what we humans can readily foresee. And and so, you know, we've been constrained in engineering by sort of saying, well, we're gonna make systems only where we can foresee what they'll do. AI is an example where that isn't the case, and it is the more powerful for it, because it allows, you know, by the time you can say, I've got this computation, and I know the answer is going to be 42, it's like, well, why are you bothering to do the computation? You already know the answer. So at the point where the computation is worth doing, then it's also an irreducible computation where you can't know what the answer is going to be, because that was the point of doing the computation, so to speak.
0: I've never heard this before. It's, you always what faithless I thought was amazing, because I would say that maybe two differences that come to mind between the natural world and AI. One is we have agency in whether to create AI or not. Like we could maybe wave a dictatorial magic wand and say, we're going to control what runs on every single GPU. Uh, or if you remember Dune, you know, outlaw AIs, whatever. So there's agency in a way I don't have around on the trees around my house. The second bit, which comes to me, is that the natural world is not changing or becoming smarter uh, from the outside world at the rate at which AIs seem to be. Uh, and how do you think about that? Like, you know, there is a fatalistic view, but there's also a view where by a magic wand, we just stop GPU production the world over and we are stuck with the GPT-4 forever.
2: In terms of the natural world, we could decide, you know, forget about living anywhere other than in Palo Alto or something. That's the only
0: mm-hmm. place humans are going to live. Forget that would not about be good for real with... estate prices in Palo Alto.
2: <laughs> right. It's, uh, you know, forget about trying to exist, you know, deep in the ocean or something or, you know, build cities in the ocean, those kinds of things. So we do make choices about, um, with respect to the natural world, about what we're going to, you know, in a sense, the magic wand is we're going to live in these places and not these places. Is the natural world getting progressively smarter? Well, that's been the story of biological evolution. It's led us to where we are today. This question of what it means to get smarter, so to speak, is a little bit tricky because you, know, you can have a computer do all kinds of computations. You know, it's what I've spent you know, lots of my life, getting computers to just compute things based on simple rules. They do very sophisticated computations that way. The only problem is most of those computations are computations that we humans have no reason to care about. So in a sense, they're they're arbitrarily intelligent. They're things where we say, well, that's nice, but we don't care. I think that the domain of computations where we say, gosh, we recognize that and it's clever, so to speak, is a very limited domain of computations. And, and, you know, it's expanded over time. There are plenty of, of computations where, well, before we knew about rule 30, for example, if somebody had you know generated that collection of bits, people would have looked at it and just said, oh, it's kind of a random collection of bits, who cares? Um, but after we've got sort of a cultural development that makes us care about that particular thing, then it can seem significant or not that a computer can make it. It matters sort of the things that we care about affect kind of what our view of these computations. It, it's not difficult to do a computation that is absolutely kind of superhuman, so to speak. And, and but many of those computations, they're kind of like alien computations. They're, they're, they're computations that just don't relate to the way that we think about the world. I mean, the way I see our computational language, for example, is it is a bridge between what is computationally possible and what we humans care about. And it's kind of picking out those computations. It's describing those computations that we humans uh, we humans care about, so to speak. And I think that's the, the thing to realize when you talk about sort of the super intelligent AI. Yeah, uh, it's doing all kinds of computations and they're beyond what humans can do. They're also beyond what humans understand. They're also beyond what humans care about. I suppose the question is, Is there, are there things which AIs can do where humans care about them, they're in the direction that humans are going, and the AI has just gone better, faster than than a human can go. Uh, my my feeling is that there'll be a certain amount of that. I think that some of the sort of grand analogies that actually people like me are, are fond of making, some of those will be you know will be sort of miraculously makeable by by AIs before probably terribly long. Although it'd be non-trivial to recognise that it did that and see what conclusions one can draw from it. But I I, I don't think uh, and you know there are plenty of things where the AI will be able to do human-like things, but just faster than humans can do them. Um, I I don't think there's a kind of a layer, I don't think it means much to say there's a layer of kind of super intelligence where there's uh, there's something qualitatively different that we care about. There's plenty of qualitatively different computation, we just don't happen to care about it. Maybe at some time in the future, our culture and intellectual history will develop in a direction where we say, oh yeah, you know, an AI discovered that in 2023. And um, now we understand why we should care. And it's really important. And we've got a whole story around it.
0: You know, of a lot of the guests we have had, uh, and I don't, you know, and, and I don't say this lightly, you are obviously brilliant, right? And I don't mean this just as a compliment, but, you know, a lot of people want to watch this and going to be like, uh, just because of the body of your work, I'm curious in the sense of what do you think you do differently that you don't think a lot of regular people actually do. For example, I've been fascinated with the idea of you building conceptual frameworks in your mind and trying to figure out how to build a matrix or a logic tree around that. But do you find yourself over the last few decades saying like, huh, I do these things maybe differently from the median person I wind up running into?
2: You know, I have a decently good memory, first point. I've learned a lot of stuff. I've kept on learning things. You know, I, you know, partly my day job, so to speak, of, you know, CEOing a company that makes this computational language that's supposed to make everything in the world computable kind of as a driver for just learning more and more and more stuff. And, you know, so learning stuff, remembering stuff, that's really useful. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they learn a certain skill, they learn a certain way of doing things, and then they stop. You know, I've been continuing to learn stuff all the time. And it's always, you know, Every new field that I get to, I always say, you know, I, I think I think to myself, okay, this one it's finally going to be too hard for me." Turns out you know after you've learnt hundreds of fields, it's actually not that difficult to learn the next one, really, but always when you get into it, at the beginning it's like oh they're these you know every time you talk to somebody about it they'll tell you about some concept you never heard of before and you'll feel like i'm kind of stupid about this field and so on and i and i've discovered that there usually there's a, a lowest point when i when you know I've, I've kind of learned some basic things and then every single person i talk to they're telling me more stuff a whole pile of stuff that i didn't know about and then there comes this moment when sort of things turn around and when kind of, well, then everything people tell me about, I've kind of heard of it before, and it fits into the sort of conceptual framework that I've developed for this field. And I think the possibility of doing that, it's partly the more you know, the easier it is to learn new things, because there are these patterns, and perhaps we will discover that the the AIs notice these patterns as people like me have noticed these kind of patterns of, yes, there's an analogy between what happens in the theory of gravity, and metamathematics or the immunology or something like this, these sort of grand analogies between things where, where sort of the, the structural way of thinking about them is similar. But, you know, it's, it's also really useful. I would say knowing facts is really useful and being able to remember facts is really useful because that's kind of the anchoring of all of this kind of thinking about things. I would say another thing that I notice is that keep the thinking apparatus engaged. About everything that you encounter, so to speak, yeah. and people have this terrible habit of, you know, they they are tremendously sort of sophisticated about some particular analytical way of thinking about things, and then somebody gives them, you know, let's say they're running a company, somebody throws them some sort of HR like problem, and they're like, oh, I don't know, I can't think about that, um, and uh, you know, I think it's it's you know keeping the thinking apparatus engaged is, is worthwhile. I wait, think wait, I, I, I of-
0: want to ask you on that front. I'm very curious. Is there a very boring, uh, domain HR, finance, where you, Stephen Wolfram, has brought first principles thinking that has surprised existing practitioners of the domain. I have to ask.
2: Oh boy, I've been involved in lots of different things. I I don't know. I think um, there's one recently about ERP systems. Yes. Okay, so we've had a a, a, a you you asked for. The, the I name, love it. This is, it? this is great,
0: Wolfram okay. on ERP. <laughs> this is new. This has not been covered before. <laughs>
2: Right. So, I mean, you know, at our company, we, you know, have transaction processing and so on. We've had that for, you know, 35 years or whatever. And I'd never paid much attention to that side of the company. And it was kind of, I would say, you know, we'd use these big systems they were kind of crufty and so on. I finally got fed up. I'm just, we're not going to renew this license. This thing is just <laughs> a piece of garbage. Um, so we're going to build our own. And, uh, you know, with Wolfram Language, we're going to build a symbolic ERP system. And um, it's it's taken about five years. It's almost finished now, and it's now at least half of it is in production. And uh, you know, it involved some ideas. So, for example, here's a here's a very trivial idea. It's like you describe products, licenses, business practices in this symbolic way. You can then do things like automated theorem proving to check that you haven't done things with your pricing strategy that that are you know you have a pricing engine that has. Is specified in terms of you feed it a symbolic representation of your the product, and you can start proving theorems that say you know can you spend less by buying more or not be able to do that or whatever else and you know things that are very uh, oh another one that seems to be working out well is is the you know you can spend a lot of time building a GUI where you know the obscure transaction is on you know this particular uh, you know field on screen 17 of the of the customer service system nobody ever remembers that so somebody's yeah. gonna to have to find you know the supervisor of the supervisor to say how do I do this transaction right so I, I decided that um, you know in modern times and you know we have <laughs> sensible customer service people mm-hmm. they can learn our computational language they can learn code and so then every transaction becomes just a piece of code yeah. and we store you know notebooks of transactions that have happened so somebody can go and find you know, Here's this obscure transaction that was a, you know, multinational license of this or that thing that, you know, and they can go and look at it and they look at the piece of code and they edit the piece of code. And then we have a validation system that checks that they're not, you know, giving away the store, so to speak. But so that was, a you know, people were like, that's not going to work. Um,
1: <laughs> Sherev and I, a year before we graduated from college, we joined our first companies. You know, we started uh So We didn't quite know, and it's a really big company. Uh, We got in, young kids, you know, punk kids who were just going against the system. And at that time, when we would, like, question the status quo, we're like, why does this have to be so complex? What is this? Like, this is a piece of software that takes a spreadsheet and computes this and puts it into this other database. Like, how can this be so complex? And we were always told, you know, early on when we were very young, you have no idea. Things are really complex there are really complex things at play like you have your you can only interpret like the small part of it but do you have any idea and this was true for phones this was true for a lot of things where we were just constantly told that you have no idea how complex things can be and need to be now after all these years i know that that may be true for some very very small section where it is truly complex and needs to be that way. But for most of what we use generally at work, at home, whatever, it doesn't have to be that yeah. way. Um, and I've now become that crazy person who's like, that's not true. All it yeah. does is, and I try to like break it down into, why does it have to be the way it is? It's one function is to do this one thing, whether it's your microwave or whatever. It has to just function in the simplest possible way. But you talking about ERP systems gives me hope that things don't have to be that complex. Just
2: to finish this thought about kind of, you know, how to think about things and different ways to think about things, I I want to say a couple of things. I mean, first point is you, you look at an area and does it really have to be that complicated and so on? One thing I've discovered, you know, after, look, you know, getting to know about lots of different areas is every area has its own slightly different way of thinking. And you can, you know, it's really it takes a little while to kind of, for it to for me at least, it takes a little while for it to soak in. You know, how do you think about things in, a, you know, a legal kind of way? How do you think about things in terms of, you know, DevOps or something? Each one of these things has a certain, you know, different rhythm of thinking. And, you know, even recognizing that fact that you can't expect to come in. I mean, you know, I, I think I not so bad at thinking about lots of kinds of things, but but when it comes to you know each one of these things, you you do have to sort of absorb the local vernacular of that way of thinking, or you just end up with things that just don't make any sense in that in that kind of area. I mean, yeah, you know, you're talking about mundane things It raises another another point, and then I, I want to comment on on sort of uh, thinking about things foundationally. But when you CEO things, there's a question of how much do you just say I'm delegating this. I'm just going to let the people who are dealing with that deal with it. And it, you know, it will not show confidence in them if I jump in and, and actually work on that myself. Well, you know, eventually, you know, I've fairly experienced lots of kinds of things. And so there are lots of kinds of things where I can, uh, You know, where I can often see what to do quite quickly, and it will take other people a long time to do it. And I kind of decided maybe 10, 15 years ago, that I would sort of break with at least some kinds of CEO tradition. And just when I see that I can solve this in 15 minutes, I'm just going to go and do it. You know, the people involved, I'm going to do it with them, but I'm going to do it. And so that's led me. You know, we have a whole mechanism when when there are really nasty bugs in, and, and bugs in large, complicated computer systems, which just can't get figured out, and they get stuck for months. Eventually, I just have these meetings where I'm just trying to let me try and figure this out. And I'm, I have to say, I'm 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 very proud of myself because I really can usually do it. And the question is, how do I manage to do it? often a mistake that people make is and again this is a like keep thinking apparatus engaged type of of issue it's like okay we've got these logs and you know oh what's happening oh it's spewing out hundreds of thousands of messages okay so what do you do with these messages well you know how about we just read them into you know often language and we start doing analysis maybe we do some machine learning thing Maybe we, and it'll be not some standard thing where everybody knows how to do that. It'll be a thing we just invented right there because we guess that this or that thing might be happening in these logs. And it's amazing how often, you know, it's like, oh, it's spewing out these things and what on earth is happening? I remember one, this was a bug in a well-known mail system, actually, where when it generated more than 256 uh, Java threads, it fell over. Okay. And um You know, how could you possibly, 256 was the critical number. And it was kind of like, how would you know that? Because it's spewing out all these messages. And well, because you start plotting, you know, you realize, oh, there's some issue with the threads. And so you start plotting, you know, how many active threads are there? And you see these plots, and it goes up to 256, and then it goes splat. And then you kind of know what's going on. But without having done that visualization, it's really hard. You're not going to count these, you know, count the number of, you know, start threads type, type things in the log. So, you know, I think this is a, uh, I always find it interesting. And I also, you know, when I, again in this, the more you know, the easier things are, whenever stuff goes wrong, you know, like DevOps stuff or something, I'll always say, what went wrong? Tell me, you know, in detail what actually happened. Because then that, you know, it goes into my little database of, you know, oh, that's another thing to check the next time something goes wrong. And, you know, you accumulate that over a few decades and it, and it becomes useful. Keeping the thinking apparatus engaged, but on the other hand, recognizing that these different domains have very different kinds of things that happen. But you know I think in terms of of how to think about things, the you know I like to do kind of drill down foundational type thinking. And I think you know I've done a whole bunch of projects in my life, and at some level, they are all the same project because they all work by some complicated area. And you have to kind of drill down and figure out what the essence is and figure out what the primitives are and then when you've got down to that essence then you build up some big engineering thing or some big sort of intellectual structure and then you have something interesting and and so you know what i've tended to do and i think the thing that i've worked very hard on is being able to say do i really understand this you know do i get to the point where I can really, you know, I've really cleaned it down to the bone, so to speak. And it's really as simple as it could possibly be. And um, and um then, you know, then you can build up from there. But it takes a certain, you know, I, I, I suppose I got better at it over the years of, you know, do I really understand this? You know, have I really gotten it minimal? You know, it, it, there's a certain humility I think it takes to, you know, to realize, well, I don't really quite understand this. And, you know, you can just sort of avoid the part you don't understand. But I tend to like, you know, my tendency tends to be to sort of head for the center of difficulty, so to speak. You know, whatever it is, whether it's a technological thing or whether it's a scientific thing, it's like there's a foundational question and like let's try and, let's try and attack that foundational question. Now, many people will say, I mean, this is the thing I see very, very often. Many people will say, oh my gosh, that's the foundational question. How can you attack that? That's obviously got to be the hardest thing to attack. Well, it turns out that's often not true. Because what happened in the development of the field, if it's science, technology, whatever else, there was a foundational thing done. Now we're multiple generations of people later, and everybody says, oh, that's that very hard thing. That's, you know, that's in the the sort of the sacred center of the whole thing, and nobody should go there. You know, we all know we're building things on the outside of that. And it might have turned out that as the decades have gone by, you know, other methods that one's discovered allow one to go right into the center. And, and make progress. And, and, and once one can make progress and sort of in the center, it's much higher leverage than making progress on something on the, in the periphery. And so, you know, I, I found that a zillion times, actually, in, in working on things most extreme, probably examples recent, example recently has been this fundamental theory of physics. Um, which is, you know, a, a tough nut that's been out there for a hundred years, basically is the, is the last time really, I would say, paradigmatic progress was made in, in physics. And in a sense, uh, you know, another point about about doing that, about sort of heading for the center of difficulty and really trying to uh, figure out something foundationally, is you do have to have a certain degree of confidence, arrogance, whatever, to uh, to decide to do that, because it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, as I say, people will say, how can that possibly work? You know, that's the, you know, that's the core of this whole area. And there are, you know, there are 100,000 papers written about this area. You know how can you make progress without drilling your way through all those hundred thousand papers, and and it just turns out in my experience that it's so often the case that the that the core is unprotected, so to speak. It's it's kind of a thing that that uh, you know people just haven't looked at, and um, or haven't looked at for a few generations, so to speak. So you know that that's been a um, that's been definitely one of my sort of uh, you know drill down so you're dealing with core kinds of things and actually head for that core and I you know. I think the other thing is just having done that a bunch of times, one develops this confidence that that can possibly work. That is important. And you know I, I know at our company it's pretty common for us to be, you know, okay, we're going to solve some problem. Somebody will say, people have been working on this problem for forty years, and there's you know four thousand papers about this problem, and you know how are we going to solve this? And I'm like, well, let's just see if we can figure something out. And you know more often than not, we do figure something out. And why is that? It's because we're bringing in new methods. We're not just giving up before we start. Anyway, that that that's I think one of the things that you know, if you ask, uh, if I manage to figure out a little bit more than some other people, you know, one of the uh, one of the things is just try and do foundational things. Uh, You know, you've got to get to the point where you understand well when you understand things, and and not you know not be able to say, well, I I can I can do this particular piece of swordsmanship. I don't really understand what's going on and you know for me another thing that i found very useful is you know i've spent quite a lot of time writing doing expository kinds of things doing you know was just before this actually i was doing a, a live stream of which i've been doing every week since the beginning of the pandemic about um uh science and technology q a for kids and others i was actually talking about ai today um people people are asking me all kinds of questions about ai but for me that process of trying to explain myself, either you know in a live stream or or in writing, is really useful because you know if I, if, I, if I try to explain it, then I kind of get to understand whether I actually know what I'm talking about. Getting to the point where you're really sure you know what you're talking about is critical because otherwise you're building you know you're not building on solid foundations.
0: Something we want to try and ask every guest is the little things that they do every single day, that make them who they are, whether it be an athlete or a brilliant mathematician and physicist as the one we have today. And so we asked Stephen what his infinite game playbook is, or as Tyler Cohen would call it, what his production function is. And he didn't disappoint. You know, one of the beautiful things about uh, cellular automata is this idea that simple things lead to amazing complexity, which I think is a great metaphor for life. Like on the show, we talk a lot about infinite games, the idea that you're doing these simple things over and over again, and there are popular sayings like how you do something is how you do everything. And I am curious, uh, you know, for maybe young people, for anyone watching this, right? What are simple things that you would wish more people would live their life by? Right? The simple production functions, the simple rules, which could lead to maybe a beautiful, complex, well-lived life.
2: Think more. There's a tremendous tendency in modern times and with sort of sophisticated education and so on to just get into this. You know, I know how to do this. I have the skill. I can keep doing this thing. And, you know, for example, in science, uh, one of the things that's really notable is the people who end up making the greatest contributions end up people being people who have good strategy about what questions to ask. Turns out it's easier to answer the questions than it is to figure out which questions to ask. Or for most people that's the case. Try and figure out things for yourself. Don't just say, oh, the experts have figured this out. We're done here. Um, you know, I, I myself take the point of view that, you know, yes, you may be an expert, that's great, I can learn something from you, but if you can't explain to me why this is true, I'm just not going to believe it. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like, I can understand anything if it's spl- explained to me in, in reasonable enough ways. And I think people, uh, you know, tend to just sort of give up. They say, I know this particular thing. I don't know this other stuff. I don't keep the thinking apparatus engaged when I'm dealing with these other things. People, in terms of what they learn, you know, how broadly they learn things, how broadly they kind of think about things, I, I would say that, that, um, uh, I tend to think, you know, when I, when I see things happening in the world, I'm like, that was really dumb. That was, you know, how did people do that? And then you realize, you kind of unpack it and you realize, well, this person was walking in this particular direction and that's the only direction they knew how to walk in. That was the only thing they were thinking about. The fact that there was a giant, you know, freight train barreling down on them from the side, they just didn't notice that. And, um, you know, I think that the uh, uh, if it's the make the world a better place, I would say that um, more thinking and more people kind of... Um, having confidence that they can actually understand things and getting to the point where they really really do understand things i think that would be a uh, you know for, from my point of view i would i would love to see more sort of more thinking going on in, in the world i think it's that that's a um, that would be a good thing uh,
0: stephen think for yourself i, I don't think i can think of a better note uh, to end this on it's been truly an honor
1: we've just about scratched the surface here we would love to have you back because i feel like we have another 10, 15 hours of questions to ask you. Um, but truly, what an honor. This is such a great pleasure to just be here. It's Friday afternoon just talking to you. Thank you so much for just making the time.
0: Yep, very, very pleased to do so. Thank you so much, Steven. This is amazing.